Well, good morning, church, and welcome to another one in this series about Elijah, Elijah the Revivalist, as we're calling the series. And, uh, you know, today our, our um, account, our story, is all based around a vineyard. Let's have a look at a typical um, Middle Eastern vineyard there, one from one in Israel. Um, my topic today is man of justice. Number four in the series, man of justice. And this, this vineyard story, there's a, there's a guy called Naboth. He's got a great vineyard. But the king wants it. And uh, he gets it by foul play. And Elijah the prophet is called to stand up for justice for, the, for Naboth's family. And so here we see um, Elijah in a, in a role, really, which is associated not so much with a nation, but with a single family. And we're going to look at uh, a few examples here, things we can learn. Uh, first of all, we're going to see four negative examples of injustice to rise above that we see evidenced in Ahab and Jezebel and the nobles and elders. And we're also going to look at four positive principles of how to believe and act that we see evidenced in Elijah, Naboth and God. So let's have a look at the first portion of Scripture. It says in uh, Kings 21, first three verses, 1 Kings 21, sometime later there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the place of Ahab, uh, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden since it's close to my palace. In exchange, I'll give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll pay you whatever it's worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. I'll leave it there. Um, I know that you've probably seen that and thought, Naboth, what are you doing, mate? <laughs> this is a, a king without scruples. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, you can imagine Naboth's wife saying, Oh, Naboth, just take the money, just take the money. But he wouldn't. Was he just being stubborn? Well, I want to suggest that he was, uh, he uses the Lord's personal name there, Yahweh, when we see L-O-I-D there in capitals. I would suggest he's a firm believer in the Lord and committed to God's word. Because if he did what Ahab wanted, he'd be breaking God's word. Let me show you the scripture. Numbers 36, 7. No inheritance in Israel is to pass from tribe to tribe, for every Israelite shall keep the tribal land inherited from his forefathers. And you notice that's exactly what he said. It's not my place. How could I give up the land that was given to my forefathers? You see, that's what is on his mind. He doesn't want to break God's word. And of course, it speaks so well of his character, because he would have known that, that this, could, this could really cost him, but he still stayed true to the word of God. Well, let's see what happens. First Kings 21.4. So Ahab went home sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. Now you must remember, Ahab grew up in the royal family. And uh, he was one of the privileged sons. And let's be honest, he probably grew up being a spoilt brat. And he used to chuck tantrums probably and chuck sulks. Here he's throwing a little sulk. He didn't get his own way. He's never really grown up, has he? <laughs> You're going to excuse it in a child when an adult's still doing it? It's, uh, yes. 
But can I suggest we need to learn from it too. Number one, don't become angry when you can't get your own way. Don't become angry when you can't get your own way. Let's be honest, it's the most natural tendency in the world for us humans. We didn't get our own way, we get mad, you know. And whether we chuck a tantrum or a sulk, the fact is, you know, we don't get our own way, we get mad. But let's rise above that. Let's rise above that. Next passage, uh, 1 Kings 21.5, it says, His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? And he answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up, eat, cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them testify that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. Now the seal, it's a little reminder here of this image of what a seal was. Um, so the king had one seal. If anyone copied that seal, that was punishable by death. So there was one seal, and that's the idea that would be the document, there'd be some wax melted, and then the seal would go on top of that, that document to seal it, to prove that it was of the king. Obviously Jezebel had free access to it. Now, the interesting thing is the nobles and the elders, they simply cooperated. They knew this was an unjust thing to do. But, you see, the fact is, you know, they knew that uh, they had the same good with the royal family or it was going to cost them. It was going to cost them financially and it could cost them a lot more than that. And so they simply cooperated even though they knew this was unjust. Can I suggest this, another lesson we learn here, number two? Don't carry out other people's bad intentions. Number two, don't carry out other people's bad intentions, such as the elders and the nobles did. Now, the motive might be, you know, keeping in good with the boss. It might be bending the rules for a client who's worth a lot of money. You know me. And it can start young. It can start as early as in the playground. My parents moved house when I was in, uh, about to start grade one school. And uh, my first, so I didn't know anyone because moved to a completely new area. Didn't know a single kid. And so started school. And there was a, another year one. His name was Gary. And he was a bully. He buddied up with the biggest kid in year one. And they would bully other kids, you know. He used to bully me as well. Anyway, um, by grade three though, I became friends with Gary. In fact, best of friends. Probably best mates. Probably his, he'd probably consider me his best mate. And, uh, but I'll tell you what, when your best mate's with the class bully, rubs off on you, doesn't it? Starts to influence you. And I remember there was this, uh, this kid, he was actually, he was a really big kid for his, his age. He was a grade down on us. He could be pretty arrogant. His nickname was Lumpy Custard because <laughs> he, he was a fat kid. Kids are very kind with their nicknames, aren't they? Um, well, um, Gary had obviously had an encounter with him. He was pretty cranky with Lumpy Custard, so he wanted to do something to humiliate him. So uh, it was a recess. One day we got talking about it. 
So we come running up behind Lumpy Custard. I grab him in a headlock, drag him to the ground. <laughs> the kid's clearly winded. Gary's laughing. Other kids are laughing. One of Lumpy Custard's friends came up to me and uh, tried to take a bit of a swing. I thought of him as a little kid, so I certainly wasn't uh, too threatened by that. Um, but, interestingly, I felt guilty. I felt I'd done the wrong thing. Don't know why I didn't grow up in a Christian family, didn't have high morals, I don't think, in our family, but, but I felt guilty. Why? Because I'd carried out someone else's bad intentions. Let's have a look at um, 1 Kings 21.11. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. You notice in the passage, uses the term God. He's cursed God. Why? Well, Baal, remember? Baal is no longer the God the nation worships. There was a great turning back to the Lord God. And even if it's nominally, even Jezebel and the king, they're not using Baal anymore. They use the term God because the nation has rejected Baal. But was it true about him cursing God? He'd be the last, one of the last people to curse God. He was a righteous man who was willing at his risk of his own life to stand up for the one true God and his word. Thinking of Jezebel, number three, don't resort to underhanded methods to achieve your goals. Number three, don't resort to underhanded methods to achieve your goals, such as Jezebel did. Now, you might not arrange a murder. Oh, I've got to be careful with that. I remember speaking on the Ten Commandments one day in Crossway South, and I put up, and I was, and I was on the murder one, and I said, now, has anyone here um, committed murder? just you know did that not expecting to see a hand go up one guy at the back sticks his hand up <laughs> he was he was quite new so I didn't know him very well <laughs> had a chat with him after the service he said yeah yeah no I did time I murdered a guy and uh you know I've done time and uh became a Christian and thought well there you go um so um so I don't know perhaps I need to re rephrase what I just said <laughs> you may not have murdered anyone yet um <laughs> I don't know but, you know, what, whatever it might be, uh, I can get, you know, if I can get people gossiping about this, I'm going to get my way. I'm just airing my opinion. If I can slander their name, you don't say slander in your mind, but if I can make people think badly of that person, then, uh, then I can get my way. Or I, you know, can even tell blatant lies about them. Then I'll get my way. Because I'm going to change what people think about their character or their skills, whatever it might be. And um, I understand it a bit more when people do stuff like that and they've been hurt and they're kind of speaking out of emotional wounds, you know. They kind of exaggerate things. It didn't really happen that way, but that's the way they felt it happened. But I've also seen it where people just tell blatant lies, just blatant lies, not out of emotion. And you've seen that probably in your workplace at times or in a club that you frequent, sports centre. But unfortunately, we also see it in churches as well. Really, we as Christians should be rising above that sort of behaviour. 1 Kings 
As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He's no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Now you'll notice there, Ahab didn't ask, how did he die? Or, Jezebel, what have you done? He didn't care. He didn't care the least about Naboth. He just wanted the vineyard. Number four, don't turn a blind eye to sinful actions that have benefited you. Don't turn a blind eye to sinful actions that have benefited you. You know, even if you don't, even if you do not do anything directly, the Lord may well hold you responsible. He certainly holds Ahab responsible for this. Look at 1 Kings 21, 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the, pa- in the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. So Elijah needs to go and confront the king. Again, here we see Elijah, we might say, taking a considerable risk. He's a one prophet coming to speak to the king who commands armed forces and he's going to tell him the prophetic word. And yet again, as usual, Elijah doesn't question, doesn't seem to fear, off he goes. He just goes and does it. Uh, and he's making a stand here, not for the nation. This is, just, this is a stand for a justice for a single family, isn't it? And a justice for Naboth's reputation. But you know, I think we as Christians are called to make a stand for justice. Five, we're going to look at four positive points now, starting at number five. Make a stand for justice. Simple as that, number five. Make a stand for justice. Could be a lack of integrity in your workplace. Make a stand for justice. A family member being gossiped about. Make a stand for justice. A student getting the blame when innocent. Make a stand for justice. Unjust criticism of the management. Make a stand for justice. 1 Kings 21.20 says this, Ahab said to Elijah, So you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will consume your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Basha, son of Ahijah, because you have provoked me to anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. And you read this passage as a whole, unlike one um, uh, Pamela was speaking on last week, where she curses Ahab, and with all the demons behind her, it certainly has an impact. This time, she's scarce. She doesn't do a thing. She's keeping a low profile. She's keeping out of it. 
It's her that is in fear this time. Now, first reading this passage, you've never read it before, the most natural thought would be this. Why would Ahab take any notice of Elijah's prophetic word? He never does. He always ignores his prophetic word. And yet, strikingly, this time he repents. It's, it's a complete surprise. But it's that because we should never underestimate the power of God's word, whether prophetic or the written word, God's word is powerful. Let me suggest this, number six. Believe in the power of God's word. You and I, believe in the power of God's word. You remember what we told in the book of Isaiah. 55.11 So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Wow. So if we look here at 1 Kings 21.27 When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay on sackcloth and went around meekly. Can you believe it? Isn't that unexpected? Now, what's sackcloth? Well, it's a bit like this. It's a hessian bag. The king, king is used to fine robes. No doubt silk. Silk undies. But no, now he's wearing sackcloth. It's, it's a, it's, he's genuinely repenting. You know? Um, I use this to catch uh, crayfish and put them in the bag in the river, normally. <laughs> Um, it tells me this, friends. Number seven, have faith that the worst of sinners may repent. Have faith that the worst of sinners may repent. It's hard to believe it sometimes. You look at some people and think, well, they're never going to come to faith in Christ. You, know? you might have an unchurched friend and they're into the occult. Perhaps they've got a criminal record. Perhaps they're just a staunch atheist. And you just you, you can't believe they could ever come to faith in Christ hey no it's extraordinary who sometimes does come to faith uh, when I was a young bloke um, I got to know this guy called Peter McGuinness and as I got to know him a little more I realized he was a Satanist priest so he was in the whole thing into the thing of sacrificing animals drinking blood cursing people including cursing churches and so on I was very into spiritual warfare as a young bloke and I started to speak against all the demonic powers over this guy's life I still catch up with him socially, but I'm praying against this stuff. Guess what? He gave his heart to Jesus. Became a committed Christian. I had the privilege of baptizing him. He went off to Bible college. You know, the truth is, like saying there, number seven, have faith that the worst of sinners may come to Christ. Um, <laughs> it reminds me of one day I was, I was registering a car in Vic Roads. You know, you take the number and you sit down for an hour waiting. You know? <laughs> so I'd, I'd taken a, a hard copy Bible and I was just sitting there reading my Bible. And you open the word somewhere like that, you know, God starts to speak to you. And uh, so this guy sitting near me and I felt the Lord say, talk to him about me. So I did. Had a great time, 20 minutes witnessing to this guy, a really good conversation. He was open to Christ. And uh, so that, that, then he got it called up. He had to go and do his thing. And, uh, and then I felt the Lord prompt me about someone else. Big, tall guy, looked pretty tough, uh, probably late 20s, muscly, tats, looked like a biker. Um, didn't look like the sort of person to be open to Christ at all, actually. 
<laughs> had a bit of a grim look about his face. Anyway, I come up to him, and surprise, as soon as I start talking to him, he brightened up straight away, get talking about Jesus, and said, oh, I just became a Christian, like, like a few weeks ago. And I thought, really? <laughs> anyway, we get talking, and he told me his story. And, uh, and I thought, man, that is, that is a cracking story. And uh, at the, at, I was um, running at my church at the time, uh, we were running something called Live at TBC. So once a month, on a Sunday night, we're trying to do this quite creative service. And I thought, would you come and share your story at this event? He said, sure, I'm up for it. So it was great. So we, we did our night. Um, Jason, who some of you will remember, he did, did a few songs of worship. And, uh, and then we had a comedian, Ben Price. He came out and, and uh, shared a few jokes. And then we moved into a more serious patch. Uh, my daughter, Evangeline, performed the dance, um, which had quite a striking meaning behind it and powerful moves. And she told the story behind the dance. And then uh, myself and the band, we did a number called Live Until Suicide, which is a very sad, heartbreaking story, but about a, a friend, um, um, uh, a youth member of one of my friend's churches who committed suicide, and I tell the story behind that. And then we get Harley up, and Harley tells his story. And uh, it goes like this. Um, I mean, he, he was a, a guy, he said, you know, I was right into the occult, I was into heavy drugs, um, and, uh, you know, I'd had a really difficult patch. Now, I think he was from Sydney, and uh, he said, look, my partner and I had a couple of little kids. She was sick of me. She was sick of my drugs. She was sick of the way I was treating her, and she kicked me out. And I had a, you know, a police thing against me. I was not allowed to see the kids. And I was just devastated, because even though I was pretty wild, I did love my little kids. You know, and I just thought, oh, okay. I made a plan. I decided I'm going to bus down to Melbourne and, and on Christmas Day, last portion of the bus trip, I'm going to go down to St Kilda Beach and I'm going to take a drug overdose. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of life. Well, the bus pulls up in Doncaster and a lady gets off to go to the Doncaster Anglican Church. And he said, I'm sitting there in my seat, know nothing about Jesus, never done church. And I, I, my legs just started moving. And I just got up and I walked into the church. I couldn't believe what I was doing. And, um, and I went in Christmas Day. And the minister's up there and he's telling the story of Jesus Christ, the birth of Jesus. And he talks about Jesus' death and resurrection and calls people to believe there and then and accept Jesus into their hearts. And I did. And I felt, I felt God. I felt God was in my heart. And his life was changed, completely changed. And he, and he, he challenges people there in the meeting. They're like, you know, if God can change my life, he can change yours as well. Let me say that one more time. Have faith that the worst of sinners may repent. Let's never lose faith. Never lose. It might be someone in your world at the moment. Have faith. Doesn't matter who they are. God will step in sometimes at times when we're surprised and yet bring them. To radical faith. First Kings 21, 28. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. This is extraordinary. He just repents a little bit. You know, he's lived, he's actually referred to as the worst king in Israel up to this point. 
and he just a bit of repentance, God's grace is straight there. And quite frankly, if his son had have repented, God would have held his hand again. But unfortunately, his son didn't. And unfortunately too, Ahab's, Ahab's repentance was short-lived. But here we see something of the grace of God. Number eight, God's grace extends to any repentant person. God's grace extends to any repentant person. Any repentant person. And I'm, I'm impressed at just how quickly God's grace was there as soon as he saw a repentant heart. Straight away, despite all of Ahab's history. What have we learned so far today? Well, we've learned four things not to do and four things to do. Number one, don't become angry when you can't get your own way. Two, don't carry out other people's bad intentions. Three, don't resort to underhanded methods to get your goal, to achieve your goals. Four, don't turn a blind eye to sinful actions that have benefited you. And four positives. Number five, make a stand for justice. Six, believe in the power of God's word. Seven, have faith that the worst of sinners may repent. Eight, God's grace extends to any repentant person. I think one of the great stories of God reaching out his hand to someone who was living a very sinful life is um, the life of John Newton. Let's have a look at him here. Here, here he is uh, looking very regal there later in life. Um, let me tell you his story. As, as you know, he was a slave trader, exploiting um, people, making a lot of money doing it. But let me go back to his childhood. His mum, I've read his autobiography, and his mum, by reading, reading about her, she sounds like she was the real deal, a, a very genuine Christian. And she taught him about Jesus, and uh, he's a clever little lad. She had him not just reading English by the time, age of six, he could read Latin fluently by the age of six. And so he's a clever young lad, John. But after those idyllic years when he was a little fella, unfortunately his mother died when he was seven. His dad was a sea captain, so he wasn't around a lot. Um, and uh, he remarried, but the new mum wasn't as interested in John, so he was promptly sent off to boarding school. His dad really cared about the lad, though, and uh, at age 15, the dad said to him, do you want to join me now on the ship? And, of course, he was keen to get out of boarding, boarding school. He said, you can continue some studies while, you, while you're travelling with me and so on. And uh, So that's what John did. But I tell you what, being around a bunch of sailors when you're 15 <laughs> might not be the best environment. John says of himself by the time he's a young adult that um, he was uh, known for his filthy language, his gambling, his drunken bouts, and he would say, worst of all, of himself, he would say, my selfish heart. I didn't care about other people at all. Life was about me, and that was about what I could take from it. And um, he decided to get into the slave industry, the slave trade. And so he would uh, travel down to the west coast of Africa and with commodities and goods, he would meet with African royalty, give them the goods and commodities they wanted and they would give in exchange people, Africans. And uh, those Africans would be chained up on a boat and then he'd take them to New England, to America, usually to Georgia, Carolina, Georgia. Let's have a look at the, the conditions. So this was... Uh, pretty much how they travelled. So the Africans would be chained up like this, 
for a long voyage. They were, let, they were allowed up on deck for one hour a day where they would hose out all the feces and vomit and so forth, and then they'd chain them back up again after an hour on deck. Having said that, though, after, if it was inclement weather, they weren't allowed up at all, and they'd be laying there in their own feces for three days, and obviously at that time, a lot of them would die. Um, I read, read about a specific voyage, and these figures were typical of any voyage. 218 slaves were on board, 62 of them died before reaching Carolina, Georgia. That would be pretty standard, John says in his book, that was normal statistics. Um, John had a few moments where uh, he started to, because he, he knew from his mum's years, he knew about Jesus, and he had a few moments. There was one time, there was a sea, you know, the ship was uh, looking like it was going to be wrecked, and he cries out to God, and de definitely God comes in, God reaches out, uh, but then he goes back to his old ways. And there's another time, he was extremely ill, probably got, thought he was going to die. Again, he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord steps in again. Well, he had a few times like that, but eventually he properly gave his heart to Jesus, fully committed. And in the journey of that, um, after he stayed in the slave industry for a while, the slave trade, but after a while the conviction started to fall upon him that you are exploiting the lives of people. You can't continue to do this. So John left it. And he had amazing testimony and he was a great communicator. So churches wanted him to come around and tell his story about how he'd come to faith in Christ and, uh, and he thought of calling into the ministry. So off he went to Anglican Seminary and uh, he graduated in 1764 taking on his first parish, which was Onley in Buckinghamshire, Onley Parish in Buckinghamshire. And um, actually it was only about 40 minutes drive from where we used to live, Buckinghamshire, so you know the area. And there he started to serve. And this is a great church, a good evangelical church. And, mate, this thing started to grow. God was blessing it. Um, and uh, they used to have these uh, Thursday night prayer meetings. Now, John was a songwriter, and so was one of the other members of the church. And they used to write a whole heap of songs. And uh, these songs would be a part of that Thursday night prayer and worship service. Of course, in their Sunday service as well. But that service in particular, God used to move in great power every Thursday night, and God would do extraordinary stuff. Um, and uh, look at those songs, of course, they went all over England. Um, John found himself there in that thriving ministry, living in a three-story home, beautiful house, large gardens, house is still there to this day. And he said, God, for over a decade, I exploited the lives of other people, and yet now, I just love my life. I feel so much grace. God, I am so unworthy of this. He writes that song, Amazing Grace. An old pub tune, and he just rewrites the verses. We usually only sing about a third of the verses. There's a whole bunch of them that he wrote. But of course, it's a testimonial song about his life. Now, later, John got a call to London uh, and started serving in an evangelical church there. And that's where he started to work with Wilberforce. Wilberforce was trying to ban to outlaw the slave trade. John Newton wrote a book, Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade. And really, he just told people exactly what it was like for the Africans suffering on the boats. That book had a massive impact on popular opinion. And the year after John died, in 1808, Parliament passed the Trade Act of 1807, which outlawed the slave trade. John was pivotal in seeing that happen. And friends, can I say this? 
No matter what your past looks like. No matter what, what sin is in your life now. God is extending his grace to you today. God showed grace even to Ahab. Unfortunately, his repentance was short-lived. And God here showed grace to John Newton. And of course, his life was completely turned around and became a great servant of the Lord. The more willing you are to embrace God's grace, the more likely you are to surrender your life to his service, as John Newton did. We're going to prepare our hearts for a time of communion. The worship team is going to return. And we're going to sing a version of that great song, Amazing Grace. Let's just allow our hearts to be prepared um, as we come around the communion table. Because, you know, this grace is only available because of what Jesus has achieved on the cross. That grace is only available because of what Jesus has achieved on the cross. Shall we pray? Let's be upstanding as we pray together. Father, we want to give you thanks, Lord, that uh, you are a God who reaches out. I actually think it's one of the most extraordinary accounts of Scripture. This evil king who has consistently done evil for years. One bit of repentance. Lord, your hand is there. You're reaching out to him straight away. And Father, we're reminded that even though you are a God, yes, you are a God of judgment. But Lord, your preference, your desire is always that people would come to believe, come to repent, know you and follow you. And your grace is always there. Father, we pray that we might be a people who are quick to respond, quick to respond, and that we would be a people who want to come to the cross of Jesus, experience forgiveness afresh and anew every day. And we pray that because of your grace, we might surrender our lives in your service to the glory of Jesus. Amen. Amen.